you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we um, are doing a two-week, a two um, I guess, I don't, know if, I don't know if two weeks constitutes a series, but it's, it's two sermons on uh, the kingdom of God, and these are set-up sermons, in a sense, uh, for a series I'll do in August, uh, completely about the kingdom of God. But it's, these two sermons are with the vision of our church in mind. I try to do this roughly every January, February. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've taken a break from whatever I've been in to preach a few vision sermons, and this is in that same vein. Last Sunday, if you remember, we looked at Jesus' words right before the Sermon on the Mount, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So it's his, his kingdom message it was my argument then. I think that was his, this is what the kingdom is about. And I tried to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is wherever the rule and reign of God is to be found, wherever, wherever his ways are being done. Now, ideally, of course, that's the church, isn't it? But uh, we don't have to limit our doing the ways of the kingdom within the walls of the church building. That can be done outside to, in our neighborhoods and the places that we work and so on. So that as an assumption, we are in the kingdom of God. We have repented. We have believed in the gospel. Well, now what do we do? And so Jesus begins to show the now what do we do by calling his disciples. And in the calling of his disciples, they were to follow him. And literally, for the twelve, it meant following him all over Judea, all over the Galilean region, Israel, and doing the things that he did and listening to his teaching. For us, of course, it means following the ways of our King Jesus. Now, that is sort of the springboard to what we're going to talk about this morning. And as the sermon suggests, how do we put forth kingdom effort? Now, the assumption of this sermon is we have repented and believe in the gospel. And it's still in this idea of, well, now what do we do? And I think Jesus uses, this is the second of three parables that he tells in chapter 25. He's explaining our preparation for his second coming but also what he expects of us while he is away. He expects kingdom effort. He expects us to take the resources that are his, that he has given unto us, to use for the betterment of his kingdom, to expand his reach, to increase his assets, as it were. And the only way to do that is to put forth effort. He has blessed us tremendously. How are we using those blessings for him and not for us? How are we using it for his sake? With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he, also who, and he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Would you teach it to us? Would you impress it upon not only our minds, but our hearts, and that we would seek to serve you with gladness, O oh Lord. And so in Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I'm not a camper. I don't really go camping much. And I finally, some years ago, found an author who really put to words the way I feel about camping. If you've ever read Kevin DeYoung's book, The Hole in Our Holiness, it's a great book. I recommend it to you. He begins his first chapter of his book explaining how he feels about camping, and I can already tell that he and I would be the best of friends. He says this. This is a long quotation. I've never understood the attraction of camping, says Kevin DeYoung, although I have plenty of friends and relatives who are avid campers. It always seemed strange to me that someone would work hard all year so that they could go live outside for a week. I get the togetherness stuff, but why do it in tents with community toilets? As an adventure, I sort of understand camping. You strap a pack on your back and go hike God's creation. That's cool. But packing up the van like Noah's Ark and driving to a mosquito-infested campground where you reconstitute an inconvenient version of your kitchen in your bedroom just doesn't make sense. Who decided that vacation should be like normal life, only harder? Every year, our church advertises family camp, and every year, my wife wants to go. And every year, we surprisingly end up in some other state during our church's allotted week. As best I can tell, the appeal of family camp is that the kids, now unbothered by parental involvement, can run around free and dirty from sunup to sundown, a sort of Lord of the Flies situation. But as appealing as it sounds to have absentee offspring in downtown with my friends, there must be a cleaner, less humid way to export the children off for a week. After all, isn't that what VBS is for? And even if the kids have a great time and the weather holds up and no one needs stitches and the 17th hot dog is as good as the first, it will still be difficult to get all the sand out of my books. I know there are a lot of diehard campers in the world, and I don't fault them for their hobby. It's just not my thing. I didn't grow up camping. My family wasn't what you call outdoorsy. We weren't against the outdoors or anything. After all, we saw it often through our windows, and we walked through it on the way to stores. But we never once went camping. We didn't own a tent, we didn't own an RV or a fifth wheel, we didn't hunt, and we didn't fish. We've been largely ignorant of camping my whole life, and I'm okay with that. It's just one more thing I don't need to worry about in my life. Camping may be great for other people, but I'm content to never talk about it, never think about it, and never do it. Knock yourself out with coolers and collapsible chairs, but camping is not required of me, and I'm fine with that. DeYoung goes on. Is it possible that you look at personal holiness like I look at camping? It's fine for other people. You sort of respect those who make their lives harder than they have to. 
It's just really not your thing. You didn't grow up with a concern for holiness. It wasn't something you talked about. It wasn't something your family prayed about, and it wasn't something your church emphasized. So to this day, it's just not your passion. The pursuit of holiness feels like one more thing to worry about in your already impossibly busy life. Sure, it'd be great to be a better person, and you do hope to avoid the really big sins, but you figure since we're saved by grace, holiness is not required of you, and frankly, your life seems just fine without it. Now, I highly recommend Kevin DeYoung's book to you, even if you happen to love camping and don't agree with anything he's just said. I think he has a point. I will use the application of his illustration a bit differently, but could it be that our personal holiness, but more specifically to this sermon, our kingdom effort, is something you recognize as important, but you just think you'll let others handle that and not yourself? It'd be easy for us to say the same thing, regarding kingdom effort as reasons that Kevin doesn't go camping and by extension me. It's nice for other people to do it, but you'd just rather not. You don't have time or you believe that others are better at this kind of thing than you are. The call of this passage is that God has uniquely gifted each and every one of us and he expects us to put forth the effort. You see, the unfaithful servant of this passage is not that he did the wrong things, it's that he did nothing. He did nothing at all. He did not take what was given to him by God and use it for God's sake. He buried it and did nothing because he misunderstood who the master really was. God has called us, this church, he's called you as a Christian, those of us in the kingdom of God, to see our assets that way. The things that you have are his. They are on loan from him while you were on this earth. That includes your money, that includes your stuff, that includes your home, that even includes your kids and your grandkids. They are his. Are we using them for his sake? Are we caring for them for his sake? Are we using them to bless the kingdom and the king? Are we using them to bless other people? Are we sort of hoarding them and doing nothing? This is the second of three parables, as I mentioned a moment ago. It's the number two and one, two, three, all about Christ's return. And the main point of all of them, are you prepared and ready for the return of the king? Because he is going to return, because he said he would. In this passage, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's already preparing his disciples for what they're going to do while he is gone. And in our case, the preparation now for us is the return of Christ. It's asking us, are we going to be faithful servants with what God has blessed us with? So three ways I want us to break this, uh, look at this passage and break it down. One is the requirements of the master. He tells the servants what he wants them to do while he's away. And then their response, what's they actually do while he's away. And then as they come back, it's the judgment then of the master. So the requirement... He calls three of his servants together, and he tells them, here, five talents, two talents, and one talent. I want you to use these for my sake while I'm gone. Now, this scenario is not at all unusual in Jesus' day. This was quite uh, common. A master would come to his servants and say, guys, I'm going to be gone for a long time, not sure how long. While I'm gone, you got to run the business. And I don't want you to leave things stagnant. I want you to increase it. This is my money, these are my things, okay, and I'm entrusting them to you while I am gone. Make things better around here. Don't just sit on it. 
Yes, you're going to reap a reward for your faithfulness, but the the true uh, uh, desire of the servant is to please the master when the master returns, isn't it? The word talent, of course, is a bit confusing here. It's not how we usually use the word. You think of a talent, you think of an ability that you have, maybe a, just a, a natural ability or a developed ability. I think that's, a, that's an appropriate application of the text, but that's not how the word would have been used here in the parable. A talent, as you likely know, is a sum of money, a very large sum of money. One talent, and we're assuming it's gold here, that would affect its value, but if, say it's one talent of gold, was roughly 6,000 denarii. One denarii is the average day's, one day's wage for the average worker. So one talent is about 20 years of pay for the average worker. The five-talent guy getting about 100 years' salary for an average worker. Now, determining what this value is in modern day isn't the point. The point is this is a lot of money and trusting these servants with a lot here, right? But the master, of course, is quite wealthy. These men are servants, and they were required to do what the master commanded. And notice that the master gives to each one according to his ability. It wasn't arbitrary, the five, two, and the one. It was what the master said, this guy can handle five. I trust him. He's going to know what to do with this. The two, don't trust him quite as much. He doesn't have quite the abilities that the five-talent guy has, but, but he does. And then, of course, the one. The talents received were based on the abilities and the faithfulness anticipated by the master. I coached my son Nathan's flag football team when he was in first and second grade. I love coaching. I didn't always love coaching this flag football team. You see, something happens usually about the second game every year. For the first, you know, in the preseason, you're doing practices with these first and second graders, and it is only glorified babysitting. You're certain they're, not, they're intentionally not listening to anything that you say, that they, they don't care that you're the coach, and the first game is miserable for all the teams. But about the second game, it clicks. All of it, for some reason, clicks. They start running the plays that you've called. They start pulling the flags in the way you've taught them. They start cheering on their teammates, and it all clicks. And the responsibility for the coach is what? Is to deploy the players in the appropriate positions. If the kid can't throw the ball, well, he can't be the quarterback. If he's not fast, well, he shouldn't be the running back. If he simply cannot pull a flag, well, then he can't play defense. The, me, the coach, I've got to put the guys in. It's like, it's like a Nintendo game. You, you get to put them in the right places, and you get to see them go and do what you have taught them to do. Deploying people in the right position is the responsibility of the coach. And here we see the master giving the players what they can handle, knowing them, knowing their abilities, giving them what they will be a faithful steward with. Christ has entrusted the church and us as people with his things. How are we using them? We don't belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. We are owned by God. We must follow the king. What, he, what we own belongs to him. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. I've worked really long and hard for the things that I have. They are his things. He is glad at your faithfulness. 
Yes, he is. But they are his things. It is his wealth. It is his time that he has given you. The break that went your way was his gift unto you. The resources, they all are his. Am I using them for me or am I using them for the kingdom? Which includes the ministries of this church, but it includes so much more than that. It's, it's things that even go outside of these walls. He has blessed you so that you would be a blessing to others. So that you would grow and expand his reign and rule in this world. Talents for us then do include our money, but it's much broader than that, I hope you see. It includes your home. It includes your influence. It includes your time. It includes your privilege. It includes your giftedness. And indeed, it also includes your children. All that we have is a gift from him. How am I stewarding that gift? It's on loan. Am I being faithful as these servants are? One of these men has been given five talents, one two, and the other one. It's an enormous amount of money enormous amount of money. It ought to remind us at all the things that are at our God's disposal. The psalmist says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a poetic way. It's not a literal interpretation of of that path. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything, right? There's nothing that is not his. He owns it all. It ought to bring to mind Jesus feeding the 5,000, when he tells the disciples, you go and feed the crowds, and they, we, we can't do that. It, it take too long to go into town, and, and we don't have a whole lot. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? We have five loaves and two fish. Well, bring it to me. And Jesus takes this very small, meager meal, and he explodes it. And it doesn't just sufficiently feed the crowds. They have an abundance on top of that. They could have fed so many more. So we often will think... I, But pastor, I don't have much. I don't have many resources. I don't have at my disposal what others have at theirs. Well, you may be the one with fewer talents. But he can take what you have, if you are faithful and willing, and explode it in its influence. Explode it in its effect. The point of this at this point is that Christ has entrusted us with gifts. How are we using them? It's recognizing or maybe reminding ourselves that we belong to him. So too does our things. Secondly is the response. These verses, verses 16 through 18, tell us what the servants do while the master is away. Westminster, it matters how we live. It matters what we do with what God has given us. I'm not talking about salvation. That's assumed That's assumed before the sermon began. I'm talking about what we do as servants of the king. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about giving ourselves for others and for him. Sometimes we think that the only thing that matters is our relationship with Christ or our decision to follow him, and no doubt these are important things. But what we do once we have joined into this kingdom is equally important. In obedience to their master, what do the first two slaves do? They get to work. They get to work. They realize, I have been entrusted with something. My master wants me to work hard while he's away, and that's what I must do. And they double the master's wealth. The amount of the, uh, uh, that they see on top of what they were be gi- been given was not the point. It was the faithfulness that was the point. Even the money that they earned on top 
of what was given to them belonged back to the master, not to them. Jesus is warning us here. This is both an exhortation and a warning. I trust that you see that. It's a, it's a, it's a prodding to us and a warning for laziness. A warning for what J.C. Ryle calls do-nothing Christianity. That which professes with our lips but is not reflected in our life. The faithfulness and hard work of the first two slaves is an expression of their love for the master. They love him. How do I know? They worked hard for him. They used what they were given for his sake. At this point, I hope you're not getting uncomfortable about this passage or this sermon as if the pastor's up here teaching a salvation by works. I'm not. If we are in Christ, we have been saved by grace through faith. All true. Now we put forth kingdom effort. We're not saved by these things, but that doesn't diminish their importance either. There is an unbreakable connection between what we believe and what we do. Or you could say what you do actually reveals that which you truly believe. Westminster, the master is away right now. Jesus has ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. He has gone off to a faraway country and he has entrusted to us, his people, his assets. Are we being faithful with them? He's coming again because he said he was. In the meantime, we are not to be lazy, we're not to grumble. We are to do what he's called us to do with the things he has entrusted us with. Why did the last servant do what he did? Because he didn't love his master. He was wrong about who he was and what he would do. For us, let's not focus on the resources or the talents that we don't have. Or, yeah, I'd do a whole lot more if I had what they did. It doesn't matter what they have. What do you have? And are you using it for his sake? To build his kingdom. Jesus is setting the story before us to remind us to do that which we profess. Thirdly and lastly, the return of the master. The master now returns from the long journey, and he calls them. He calls them to make account for what they've been up to since he's been gone. What have you done with what I gave you, he asks. Up first are the first two faithful servants. They have doubled the money, doubled the, the talents. These servants used the master's money well. They increased his business and his wealth. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I'm not going to unpack this too much, but listen carefully to the language. I have placed you, you have been faithful over a little. A little? Millions and millions of dollars. God calls little. That's right, because it is a little in his view and what he has at his disposal. Share now in the joy of your master. This is the greatest thing that we can hear as God's people. On judgment day, when God looks at us and says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over that which I gave you. Come now into the joy of my master. Come into the joy and into the, the abundance of what heaven is. You know, servants of Christ, we will discover when Christ returns, probably to our amazement, 
that God saw more beauty and the efforts and the things that we did than we ever imagined that he would. Here's Kevin DeYoung one more time in the hole, of our, hole in our holiness. We can think it's a mark of spiritual sensitivity to consider everything we do as morally suspect. But that's not the way the Bible thinks about righteousness. Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our Heavenly Father. And what sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleans out the garage, but he put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, oh, this is worthless? What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike for the first try? There's no righteousness that makes us right with God except the righteousness of Christ. But for those who have been made right with God by grace alone through faith alone, and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they are exceedingly sweet, precious, and pleasing to Him. The filthy rags from Isaiah chapter 64 is speaking to those self-righteous Pharisees who are assuming that their righteous, or excuse me, that their, their lawful, uh, their observance of the, of the laws is what's making them right before God. They have no heart for him whatsoever. That's the filthy rags. That's the deeds apart from faith. Is everything we do sort of tinged with sin? Of course, but we can indeed please him when we are living and acting by faith. Both of the slaves come enthusiastically to the master to show what they've done. They use their gifts that they were given by God and the resources to glorify him for his sake and for the sake of others. Whatever you have, Westminster, use it. Because again, the unfaithful servant has not murdered anyone. He's not cheated anyone. He's not hurt anyone. He has not done anything at all, and he's condemned for that. The faithfulness of the servants is rewarded with, well done, good and faithful servant. You did exactly what you were supposed to do, because you're a servant. How do we today improve the master's assets? How do we build the kingdom and how do we use our gifts? Well, no doubt there's an angle of this as far as application is concerned that we share this very good news that we have been given to repent and believe in the gospel. There are some other very obvious ways that we are to put forth this kind of kingdom effort. Starting tomorrow, our Vita ministry. This is a way, an obvious way for kingdom effort. People are coming to our church to have their taxes prepared. We can be there to love them and extend to them hospitality. Well, what kind of kingdom asset would I be using? You're using your time. You're using your energy, right? This is a way that we can bless others with what we have been given. Agape women's services need our support. You can grab a baby bottle and you can fill it with money. You can volunteer to help in any way that they need. These are are obvious ways that we can put forth this kind of effort with what we have been given. We can use the gifts that we have to provide meals for families in need. Two families that go to this church that live in the same neighborhood, you really need to get to know the so-and-sos. Well, why don't you invite the so-and-sos over for dinner? They don't have a church home. Maybe they'll come and be a part of what we're doing here at Westminster. We give thanks to God for the good gifts that he's given us. Maybe you can join Oasis. It's a group here at our church that when something's broken, they go fix it. 
on the, on the church grounds or even with someone in our congregation. You have abilities in this area, and you can indeed help. You know, there's a huge way that we really need kingdom effort right now in the life of our church, Westminster, and it is this. We have been pleading with our congregation for almost six months now that we need a, a teacher for our four- and five-year-olds, and no one has volunteered to help. We need you. Our children's ministry is about to grow and expand with the hiring of a full-time children's ministry director. We need you. We need you to disciple our kids. You've seen, likely if you've been to the second service, we got a ton of kids. So much so that it's really overwhelming what we're doing right now. We need your help. And you have the time, you have the ability, you have the love and desire for this. We need you. In many other ways that we, you can step in and help. Because the things that you have been given are not for the hoarding of it. It's for the giving and the extending of its reach for God's glory. But also, I want you to think beyond the walls of this church. How can I grow the kingdom of God even outside of Westminster Presbyterian Church? What can I do for God's kingdom out there? We can gripe and complain all we want to about the culture and where it's headed. Are we trying to do something to affect change in it where we live? What we need at Westminster is every single person in this congregation committing to coming in and worshiping God to be involved in discipleship for yourself and the growth and grace, and then am I giving myself to seek to make disciples where I live and in ministries of this church and beyond. One of the things that I pray that this vision for our church is going to accomplish is going to help us think with more of a kingdom mindset. One of our desires is that we would see a church planted in this area in the next two years. Maybe the Lord would call you to be a part of that church plant. Say, but how could I leave the people here at Westminster? You can because you have a kingdom mindset. You want to see the kingdom grow and expand, not just the interest here of this church, but how are more and more people reached for the sake of Christ? Because that's what we want. Bigger and bigger. It's bigger than what we do. This kingdom is much bigger than Johnson City or the U.S. and beyond. Our Christianity is not just what happens here. It, this is where we're equipped. This is where we worship. This is where we're reminded. And then we go out into the mission field to seek to make disciples. Our perspective needs to grow. It's not just what I like. It's not just what I want. It's not enter these doors and I hope we sing the songs I enjoy. How am I being here for others and for the sake of God? I remind you again of J.C. Ryle's quotation... I'm going to read the expanded version of it here. Let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace never to be content with a profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only feel the importance of saving faith in Christ, but do something too. Let us beware of do-nothing Christianity because such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. Well, how are we going to do this? Where is the motivation going to come? It's going to come from the words that we just sang a moment ago from O Church Arise. So Spirit come, put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. You don't naturally have the desire in you to do this. And it's our prayer. 
Spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Would you, O Lord? Would you give us the strength and the mind for this? Would you give grace for every hurdle? Because there are many hurdles to the ministries and the things that we want to do and the conversations we need to have. That we may run with faith to win the prize. What's the prize? To be told on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you these things, these resources and these talents, and you use them for my sake. That's what he wants for us. In Westminster, that requires effort. Let's pray that we would do this so that our king would be pleased. Let's pray.